0: Hi, everyone. Today is April 14, 2008. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. I'm Salma Qureshi. This week we were very lucky to be joined by Mario Capecchi. Mario is a recipient of this year's Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine for his work on gene targeting in the 80s, work which ultimately changed the face of research by ushering in the era of the knockout mouse. He's currently co-chair of the Department of Human Genetics at the University of Utah in Salt Lake. For this broadcast, I handed over hosting duties to Gary Galfo, who is a member of our neurofaculty and a longtime friend and former trainee of Mario's. Thanks for listening. Joining us on our panel today, we have Brian Derrick.
1: Hello.
0: Edwin Barrera-Rodriguez. Hello. Gary Galfo. Hello. Carlos Palladini.
1: Always
2: fun to be here. Rama Retina. Hello.
0: Charles Wilson. Hey. And Todd Troyer, the Extra Big Group Day. And myself, my name is Salma Karashi.
3: Today, uh, um, uh, it's, it's my honor to have uh, uh, Dr. Mario uh this year's uh, Nobel Prize winner in physiology or medicine, for his work on gene targeting. And I thought, Mario,
4: say hello. <laughs> be happy and, to be here. Okay.
3: And I thought today we can get uh, uh, something started. Uh, uh, with the topic of, uh, of, of groundbreaking uh, technology, uh, because you were part of uh, the group uh, in Jim Watson's laboratory in in the 60s that really forged uh, molecular uh, science into, uh, I guess, um, the future, right, that area. And you also uh, uh, extended your work uh, um using DNA technology to modify every gene in in, in the mouse so you saw a dramatic transition as neuroscientists uh, we're also interested in topics like that what you think uh, where neuroscience um, uh, should be headed or where you think it's headed sure
4: Uh, I mean uh, see in terms of neuroscience I mean my feeling is uh, I'm a geneticist so I'm quite biased Uh, I think I don't think the genes do everything, but it allows essentially a way to uh, intersect and to dissect problems down into workable subunits. So I, uh, so I, I'm always looking for ways of u- utilizing genetics to uh, address very complex problems. And I think neuroscience is about as complex as you can get. I mean, I think it's uh, it's going to be the last frontier of our understanding. And I think. Uh, uh, it's, it's very challenging and also it's going to be very exciting because I think we will understand how the mind works. We will understand where memories are stored, how we retrieve them, and the precision that we can retrieve them. Uh, so I think those are you know, enormous questions and uh, very challenging, and I'm hoping that genetics will be at the forefront. I mean, I think, and there's where the challenge is because in terms of genetics, Uh, I mean, there's a human population, uh, and that's very, uh, you know, that's a very strong population because it's, uh, I mean, in terms of neuroscience, the one nice thing about humans is we can communicate, we can talk to each other, and and also in terms of our experiences and what we're feeling and what's going on. So in that sense, there's an enormous reservoir of uh, information that you can get from humans, but we cannot manipulate humans genetically. We can't set up crosses. Uh, which is of, uh, one of the things you want to do in genetics. And we can't uh, uh, really do uh, avant-garde, or we would say, manipulations, uh, so that uh, we're limited, uh, we can observe, we can uh, uh, try to understand, but we can't intersect, uh, except possibly through accidents uh, of uh, medicine or just uh, work accidents that affect then neural uh, behavior. So I'm looking for other organisms, and for example, uh, primates look like uh, an organism that would be uh, accessible, but genetically it's not accessible. The generation times are too long, uh, the, uh, uh, the manipulations that you can do with a primate are just uh, too formidable in terms of genetics. So I'm looking for ways, in essence, to be able to extend what we're doing now to all other organisms, and in a way, also primates. And particularly to, to, uh, you know, for example, you know, our nervous system is obviously much more complex than even, for example, a mouse. I mean, how we process uh, visual information is extremely uh, primitive in a mouse, in the sense that there's only one small center, uh, superior colliculus, which is actually involved in processing uh, visual information. Whereas we process in a number of centers and then uh, separately integrate all the different aspects of our visual experience and then integrate them into a single vision and then we that's in our interpretation of the world. And that requires very different networking than is possible, for example, in a mouse. So it would be nice to be able to do uh, genetics uh, in the nervous system of a primate, but I don't think that's gonna happen. And so our approach, for example, for the future will be can we essentially use the mouse, for example, as a surrogate uh, for an entirely other species, and in particular, for example, for a primate, and thereby allow genetic access to uh, something as complex as a primate brain. So that's where we're seeing
5: our future and hopefully our contribution uh, to that future. So, do you, so you think that the, the mouse is the best one? Is it better to have one model uh,
4: animal? Uh-huh. Is it better to have three? Is it better to red have red 20? Red. I mean, I think in terms of mammals, it's certainly the best one. I mean, I think it's uh, it is a mammal, uh, so our plumbing is similar. Uh, so we don't have differences in plumbing, and uh, and I think on the whole, I mean, for example, when we started working uh, in the, uh, in neurosciences in the mouse, there were actually weren't any mouse atlases. And so we used the human atlas uh, as, you know, as our guidepost. We simply, uh, you know, we could find hallmarks, essentially, in the human atlas, just to say where we were uh, in the uh, mouse atlas. So there is enough correspondence to s- see where the uh, similarities are. Uh, what's uh, not clear is where the differences are. And I think what the, you know, our emphasis so far, and also it's true in all of molecular biology, we've been emphasizing all the similarities, everything that's similar. And there is reason for that, so that then we can study, uh, you know, certain aspects in Drosophila that are common to humans. Uh, but on the other hand, what makes us uh, diverse is our differences. Uh, and so now I think I want, what I want to start to emphasize is what makes us different, and, and also how do you approach uh, uh, actually studying those differences. And then, so I think the mouse will still be the uh, animal of choice, simply because it's small, it's prolific. Uh, and so we'll be able to do lots of genetic experiments. Uh, and I don't see another organism, even a, you know, uh, I mean, even a rat. Uh, you know, you know, in a sense, a rat is a big mouse. Uh, and some people think rats are much smarter. I don't think they're much smarter. I think simply, uh, you're working with inbred mice, which are sort of handicapped, uh, so they seem to, to not be as smart. But in, in reality, I think they're just as smart. But even going to a rat, the expense is about a factor of 10. Uh, and so there's where the rub comes in. So you have to weigh essentially economic uh, considerations versus uh, you know ability to work with a slightly bigger brain uh, and, uh, and one that may be more familiar to most of you. So, so Murray, you
3: mentioned that uh, uh, you envisioned uh, the mouse being a surrogate. Uh-huh for uh, a primate visual system. So are, are, you, do, do you, are you planning on taking the, the primate genome or the, the hum, part of the human genome and uh, genetically engineering the mouse so that it becomes uh, a chimeric that's animal? Right. Is that right. what you mean by surrogate?
4: Yeah. No, I think that, that's our plan is essentially to, uh, for example, if we're interested in studying a particular primate, what we want to do is make a collection of mice, which would then have representation of the entire genome of that particular primate, and then utilize uh, all the differences between uh, those two organisms to then filter out, you know, essentially, in the genetic screen as to what's happening. Uh, and, and I'll give you an example. I mean, right now we're concentrating on bats. Uh, and there are two classes of bats, so megabats and microbats. And initially, people thought that uh, megabats were derived from uh, primates and uh, microbats were derived from rodents. And the reason for that was simply by looking at their brain. If you look at the histology of a, a megabat brain, it looks just like a primate. Uh, and, uh, and again, having multiple uh, visual uh, components that then integrate that information to make the final dimension. So. On the other hand, once they actually started sequencing DNA, it was clear that megabats and microbats were derived from the exact same or- origin, all of rodents. And so that says that even the complexity of the histology of our brain, which is quite markedly different uh, to, for example, our rodents, uh, is still uh, derived in a fairly short period of time in evolution and as a consequence cannot involve many, many genes. It can only be three or four genes essentially that make that enormous difference. So that's why I'm hopeful that this kind of approach will allow us to then start to be able to do, for example, neurophysiology on a more like primate brain by slowly converting essentially the mouse brain into a a a primate-like brain.
1: I work on uh, stem cells, but adult-generated stem cells and often I'm asked the question, um, because it's such a, a debate, why do you need embryonic stem cells, and what can embryonic stem cells tell us that adult-derived stem cells can't? And I've not really been able to answer that question. Maybe you can help me out with this. So. Uh-huh.
4: Uh, I mean, again, I think, you know, in terms of gene content, we're 99, all mammals, are 99.9% the same. So in essence, I think everything that we've ever learned from the mouse has been directly or fairly directly uh, involved uh, in, or informative with respect to humans and so I think the same thing will be true of the uh, stem cell populations I think uh, you know what we learned from the mouse uh, stem cells is, is directly applicable to the human but there are you know there are slight variances and that's why you work with human stem cells because I think you want to be uh, You you want to be aware essentially of any of those differences and how many of those are... I mean, an example is, I mean, people have isolated this back in the 80s now, uh, mouse embryonic stem cells. They've since then been putting a lot of effort in trying to isolate rats stem cells. And yet nobody still has succeeded because there's slight differences. I mean, my guess is that LIF, which is a very important factor for uh, uh, allowing uh, maintenance of Mouse stem cells doesn't work with rat stem cells, so you have to find a different factor. Nobody's found a, a convenient way of it, uh, of finding that factor. With the human stem cells, uh, I think uh, you know they, uh, the the culture conditions seem to be a little bit more permissive, and therefore they have isolated cells that look very promising in terms of their potential. Uh, so I think it's. And, but those are the nuances that are why it's important to not only say, you know, always work with this system, but also work with a variety of systems. So always, you know, I never say put all your eggs in one basket. Always put your eggs in in several baskets because you don't know in the end which ones are going to be productive. Mm -hmm.
5: At the the beginning of your, of of this talk, you, you began commenting on how genes don't, you don't I think if you said, genes don't do everything. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, and, and one of the, the challenges that we usually have, and, and even when we are teaching, is you know, the, what is it that the environment is then doing? So genes, we talk a great deal about genes and how they can drive behavior. Yeah. Yet we see changes that can occur you know, due to the influence of, of and, and the, of the environment. The example that I always use is the visual system that you began talking about. So how do you see those two? Uh, I mean, I
4: always look at them as not as uh, opposite uh, poles, in essence, but actually as interacting poles. So that is, the gene something has to respond to the environment. So you set up an organism; you have sensory systems, all which try to give you clues as to what's out there, and utilize that for predictive value, so that the organism can then survive. So I always look at it as an interaction, and you know, and the brain is an extreme in the sense that. Not only is it interacting, but its actual organization, its function, and so on, is dependent on its uh, its experience with the environment. So it's always uh, going back and forth, you have to have something, a sensor, you have to have a system that is sensitive to what's going on out there, and you have to have things out there happening in order to feedback, to uh, evaluate what's going on out there. So. I, I always look at it as, you know, that it isn't uh, nurture or nature, but it's also the interaction of those two that are important with respect to every facet. And, and I think that and the brain being an extreme example of that. Uh. I, was gonna, I
2: wanted to go back to the uh, em- embryonic stem cell uh-huh. debate. And um, one question I, I've had about, I, d- I don't know too much about stem cells, or, but how is that different to, um, from uh, in vitro fertilization for humans? Uh-huh. in terms yeah. of technique and in terms of um, using um,
4: pluripotent cells, too? Right. I mean, I think in terms of, uh, I mean, the who is is, I think, uh, I mean, to be able to use stem cells for two purposes. I mean, one is as a tool for simply study. And an example, fairly soon people will be able to develop uh, stem cells from people that have different genetic defects. And so then you'll be able to study that in a population of cells that's capable of going through quite a few manipulations uh, in terms of differentiation into different types of cells and then looking at the output uh, with respect to having different mutations uh, in that background. So I think that that's one aspect of it. And then the other is more therapeutic in the sense that the stem cells allow essentially manipulation before being reintroduced uh, for a particular therapeutic purpose. So I think it, it has, it's a, uh, so I think that's the difference between, you know, in vitro fertilization, you have a, a population of cells that you can uh, direct in a particular way, you make them, you know, you start out with a pluripotent stem cells, you may have a motor neuron defect and so you. Uh, make them differentiate along the neuro, uh, motor neural pathway, and then utilize them as therapy uh, in the soma- as somatic tissue in the body. And so I think, uh, and that's the other differentiation is, is simply, you know, you're working with somatic tissue as opposed to uh, germ cell tissue. And I think there are people, uh, you know, in terms of just ethical concerns, people are much more uh, at ease in doing somatic manipulations where you're only affecting liver or you're only affecting skin, uh, some tissue of that uh, individual that has a defect, whereas affecting rather than affecting the germline, which then is going to propagate to the next generation and so on. So I think the manipulations are quite different and also the flexibility of the system is quite different. So on this topic, I'm Uh,
3: wondering how you Envision the future for gene therapy for nervous system. Uh I was thinking specifically about Huntington's disease, Uh in which we know the genetic defect exactly. We know exactly what we'd like to do,
4: but we just don't know how to do it. And and I think you know with the nervous system, I think again, you know, what terrifies people, I think, is that you know, some of the damage is, seems so extensive. I mean, particularly if it's a developmental defect where all of a sudden the circuitry is completely messed up, you know, how you, will you ever be able to correct that? But there are remarkable experiments that have been done in mice where, for example, you have a mutation that essentially affects neural development, uh, and then what you've, that people have done in the mouse is to correct that gene in the adult mouse, and remarkably, you know, the, the system is so plastic that it actually helps and, and was curative. Even though many of the circuits were completely never formed. Uh, yet uh, what's nice about our nervous system it is it's extremely plastic and it's you know it's trying to do its best to figure out what's happening. You know, and many examples of people who have strokes, initially they'll be paralyzed completely on one side and not be able to utilize it. And then slowly essentially uh essentially the plasticity of the system allows it now to reroute itself figure out what's going on we sense essentially what right and left is and slowly uh, the, you know, the motor control on that side becomes uh, is retrieved and so I think even things that look desperate in terms of ever being able to cure my guess is it'll work I mean I think uh, simply because of plasticity of the system and sometimes even Adding just trophic factors, I mean, it's not that we have to correct essentially the nervous system itself, we don't have to reroute the system. Uh, if we simply allow it away, for example, with Parkinson's disease, so now all of a sudden it has a source of appropriate neurotransmitters, uh, then the, the system itself will correct itself, given a chance. Uh, so I think what we'll see is a, a lot of essentially cell therapy systems where you'll introduce essentially cells which then will start producing appropriate uh, neurotrophic factors or neurotransmitters and then slowly the system will reorganize itself and, and do the best it can with what it's got left. Uh, no, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's certainly not easy. And you know, in all of this, I think we have to make sure that we don't oversell it in the sense that you know people will expect a cure tomorrow. It's going to take 20, 30 years. But I think medicine in 20, 30, 40 years from now is going to be remarkably different from what it is today. Yeah. Simply because it will be knowledge based. So, uh, so we hear we are
3: hearing many many things about possibilities of the technology itself. But I, it seems that knock in and knock out is very. Um, is is fundamentally enough that it can touch upon, say, plants, animals. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can be used for treating disease and so on. So, where where is the scope? What what is what is limiting? What can be done? What cannot be done? That's one question. Mm-hmm. The second is, there is there's this huge concern among the, among people that the technology could
4: be potentially create problems. Mm-hmm. So, sure. how do you limit? what, what is the limit to all this? Well, I think the the limits are—I mean, I, you know—the limits I would initially set myself, I mean, if I were, uh, you know, making such guidelines, is initially don't do anything in the germline simply because, uh, you know, what we think may be bright today may seem pretty stupid tomorrow, uh, and so you restrict yourself to somatic tissue, and and in that sense, anything you do is pretty much like ordinary me- medicine. That is, we're treating the patient, uh, and so I think you can make that kind of limitation. And then uh, I think what we have to do is simply slowly try. I mean, I think you develop good animal models and try and do the best you can with that. And then once you've learned your lessons there, then you can start to extend it to humans. Uh, And you do it uh, small steps at a time and see what happens. And I think that's what will happen. I mean, people will try, uh, you know, the simplest types of operations uh, and then see what happens. And right now, I mean, gene therapy itself has gone through it, you know, it had a promise, you know, for now 20 years. And the problem has always been delivery. You know, it's it's, it's delivery and delivery and delivery. That is, you have to uh, create a hole. You have to uh, be able to correct enough cells to make a difference. And so far, that's been uh, very challenging. But we're just beginning to actually now see returns. And there are some now uh, trials that uh, look very promising. So I think, uh, you know, it's, it's just a... there's a learning curve and you're gonna have to surmount certain problems. And that's the one nice thing I think with stem cell therapy is that maybe the delivery problem won't be as great because often, for example, the the cells themselves know where to go. We don't have to direct them. They have guiding cues, you know, a liver cell knows it's a liver cell and it should be in the liver uh, and so on. Uh, And so the cues are there. And so if we apply, uh, apply appropriate sufficient cells that are working, I think then there's a good chance that they will help. Uh, and I think we just have to explore and see what happens. And you do it also of patients that, uh, you know, there are no other resources. And so, if the, and so then under those circumstances, they're, they're grateful for anything that might help.
1: You nog know, are, are quite popular now in learning and memory and in addressing learning and memory. And one of the interesting things that I've seen is, is that frequently in a knockout strain, although we do see deficits, quite often the deficits aren't as profound as you would have expected, and uh-huh. there appears to be redundancy in backup systems. Yeah. And um, I, what is your view on that as a molecular biologist? How do you no, see no, it in the big I, picture?
4: I think, again, it's, you know, particularly with the nervous system, it's because of plasticity. I mean, it's looking for different solutions. And it may not be the one that it utilized during embryogenesis, but it's it works. And what you know, the rule of biology is simply, it doesn't have a logic. It simply tries different things until something works. And that's what the selection is for: is something that works. And we will put together certain combinations, and you know, and we may not have thought of that particular combination, uh, but it works. And then the other thing you do is have backup systems. You always want to have partial redundancy, so if you destroy a a component, you don't completely destroy the organism. So many, many genes aren't, uh, you know, it's not that they're completely overlapping, because if they were completely overlapping, then there's nothing holding it uh, in terms of evolution. But what they do is to partially overlap. And then uh, the overlap part gives you essentially a, a backup system. And then the non-overlapping part gives you selection to maintain that particular gene. And I think that's a scenario that's played over and over again. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about biology is its flexibility and its redundancy. So I think we should actually anticipate that. Uh, and then I think what we have to do is simply be able to uh, know that you. Often we can guess essentially what the other players are. There'll be other family members, for example, of a particular gene, uh, so that uh, we can see who's likely to be overlapping and then start asking, well, is there overlap? Knock out both genes and and look at that combination and so on. And that allows you then to start to address those questions. Uh, About plasticity,
3: so uh, uh, one of the um, family of genes that you study are the homeobox genes, which are Uh described in Drosophila, um, when you knocked out a certain Hox genes, the mouse showed human-like symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder, right? So how do you relate that kind of behavior to a set of molecules that's evolutionary conserved? So how would these set of molecules um, act in in Drosophila, do you see a a one-to-one?
4: Uh, No, I I mean, uh, first of all, uh, drosophila do groom. Uh, There's been some very cute experiments. What they do is uh, they simply sprinkle talcum powder over the drosophila, and the ones that groom essentially shake them all off, Uh, whereas the ones that aren't grooming essentially keep the talcum powder, so you have a very strong selection, a visual selection, to see who's grooming and who isn't grooming. Uh, and, and that way they've isolated mutations uh, in genes that uh, affect grooming, but nobody's uh, gone ahead and figured out what those genes are. Our prediction is some of them will be uh, Hox genes. Uh, and what's happened with Hox genes in terms of behavior is that they're very good switches for turning genes on and turning genes off. Uh, and so what they've been done is to be usurped now, once they've finished their role, essentially doing and making the body plan. Now they're being utilized for all sorts of other uh, roles in, in the adults as we're talking. Sensory Hox genes are firing away <coughs> in our brain. Uh, and these are completely new functions, uh, and, but they're, you know, again, they're turning the genes on and off, and they're good at that, and so it's been utilized for that purpose. And it's, again, an example where serendipity, simply evolution says, you know, I've got something that can do things well. It can orchestrate turning things on and off, uh, and uh, and let's utilize it now for a new function that's completely unrelated to what normally was doing.
5: Sure. So that seems to, to, to bring up the question of, of suppose you have two poles of looking at genetics, one in terms of, uh, of development and embryogenesis and starting from the beginning and setting up the system versus what's happening in an adult. <laughs> and you can imagine that you manipulate genes and they have, because the system is so complicated and already there, it has very little to do with with your developmental studies or exactly. not. I mean, there may be principles and, and uh, specific things. So do you see them as being quite separate and we have to tinker around with both ends or uh, 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 an interaction pretty quickly?
4: No, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, what they're gonna be utilized is almost unpredictable. I mean, for example, Hox genes themselves in uh, during development pretty much stop at the hindbrain barrier, okay? They're not expressed in the midbrain brain and the forebrain. And yet after after birth, now they're being found to be expressed all over the brain, uh, forebrain and midbrain. So, what, where they're going to be utilized, I think, is unpredictable, and that's just a stochastic thing happening during evolution. On the other hand, Hox genes aren't simply turning on any old gene; they are looking at particular DNA sequences. So, in terms of the molecular biology, you know, what are the likely targets to be involved in being? To activated and repressed, then there is a commonality, and so you can still utilize that aspect of it to tell you what they're doing in the adult. So I think it's always a mixture. I mean, the more you learn about the system uh, in during embryogenesis, the more likely you are to be have some predictive value of what they're doing uh, in the adult. But, and we'll see many examples of this, particularly with respect to transcription factors, that, you know, a gene, it, you know, once it's there and it can be utilized, it's going to, the organism's going to start utilizing for quite unexpected things. Uh, and, but uh, we can take advantage of that. And, and then, you know, an example is the Pax uh, 6, essentially, where it's, you know, all of a sudden uh, we've realized, you know, we always we thought our visual, our eyes, were quite different from a a drosophila in terms of it certainly looks quite different and how it operates is quite different and yet it's using the same molecular biology to initiate that whole event Uh, and that's going to be common all the way through very early now even things that are simply sensing light they're not even looking at a visual system they're simply saying is there is there light or isn't there light we'll still be utilizing the system to initiate forming that system
2: so in, in terms of, for neuroscientists, using all these fantastic tools that eugeneticists bring us, yeah. and um, so we like to knock things out in the brain and, and find out what happens. Um, but you're, you're mentioning um, about plasticity in the brain and how, for example, a homeobox gene can um, provide a body plan, but then it just turns on specific other genes in the brain after the, the body has developed. So how, how useful a tool is it for neuroscientists, then to use knockouts where we think it has a specific um, uh, function in an adult-developed animal, um, but we're knocking it out during embryogenesis? And, uh, should we use only inducible knockouts?
4: Yeah. No, I, I, uh, no, I think the future will all be essentially uh, conditional mutations. That is where you can select not only when, but also very specifically which cell types and so on. And to be able to do that, I mean, in the future, I'm hoping to see, you know, enormous developments. For example, right now, you know, GFP is pretty nice. I mean, it's a green color and so on, uh, but the sensitivity isn't great. And I think we'll see improvements in capture times of, uh, uh, and also in uh, utilizing, for example, right now, when we turn on Cree, it takes about a day for it to finally do its active thing. So those are pretty cr- crude uh, instruments. And, and I think we'll see enormous improvements uh, both in terms of capture time in terms of uh, the uh, reporter genes themselves as well as the induction times where you know, now we'll utilize light essentially to turn on a gene which is fairly instantaneous rather than having to add a small molecule which has to diffuse through the whole circulatory system. So I think we're going to see those improvements and refinements. Uh, and eventually be able to be at the level where we can utilize it to actually address questions that we would like to in neurosciences, but uh, and that's coming. I mean, it's, uh, you know what's nice is uh, many of these things are limited essentially by computers, and you know we know what the rule of uh, improvements of computers is. So it's, you know, so we'll take advantage of that uh, to utilize uh, and be able to make much more sophisticated models uh, in the future than are presently available.
5: But, but yet, the challenge that we have as neuroscientists comes with this, the whole issue of plasticity that we have been talking about. Because, um, you know, I, I never forget this article written actually by, by a biochemist. And uh, he said that the molecules involved, for example, learning and memory, and there were hundreds of them. So, you know, for example, we, if, if we knock out calcium and we have a deficit in memory, yet we still have. Other kindnesses mm-hmm. that are, have been shown to be involved in learning and memory, and so uh, still the challenge is: so what is this magic molecule that is supposed to do the okay. thing? Yeah. And, and be, because th- there seems to be, less, as you mentioned, some redundancy, you know, in the system, at least in the field of learning and memory, there seems to be <coughs> some redundancy. Uh, yes, yet there is some deficit. No, I mean, I think. You know we can't delude ourselves.
4: Biology is very complex, and what we have to do is make the, our technology to uh, be equal to that complexity. We'll have to be able to utilize you know right now we're mostly activating one gene or inactivating a gene one at a time. okay We'll have to multiplex that and do that uh, several genes at a time. We'll have to be able to have several reporters giving back uh, information to us at, at a given time. And so I think we have to simply. I mean, to me, it's, complexity is challenging, but not uh, you know, it's not unsurmountable. Simply, you have to improve it and continue to improve it, and we'll see that. I mean, I think uh, uh, you know, the embeddedness of minds is quite remarkable. I'm always amazed at uh, you know how much progress we have made in the last fifty years, for example. And we, you know, scientists. Uh, I always tell my students that you know we always overestimate what we can do in five years. But we always underestimate what we can do in 20 years. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that new technology comes along to allow you to do things, to measure things that you weren't uh, capable of doing before. You know, 20 years ago, it was impossible to think about having a sequence. You know, we're generating now the main sequence in three months, uh, whereas it took, uh, you know, the human genome, it took uh, 15 years. So we can see the enormous speed up of, of being able to utilize information, and now we simply have to address the complexity. And there's there's no promise. It's you know it is very complex, and how, you know the more you get into it, the more you realize how complex it is. But nonetheless, it's it's not insurmountable. And so I think I find it as a challenge as opposed to uh, you know being uh, afraid of it.
3: So this is a, a hard question to, to answer because you can only look back at it. So you had Jim Watson and Crick and other investigators discovered the structure of DNA. You pioneered a technology that manipulated DNA. So what do you think the next step is in DNA
4: or gene biology? I think... I think uh truly taking advantage of uh, a addressing the complexity in the sense that it's, Things aren't just one or two genes. It's always a, a group of genes and being able to then uh, Follow essentially that, that integration that occurs. Yeah. You know one of the things in mean, a neuron, you know, it's quite remarkable you, know, you could do a lot of things to that neuron. It's quite uh, you know, and the outputs are quite uh, amazing But they're always the same essentially Whereas what you're getting you know, in terms of the nervous system is the interactions of many, many neurons to be able to talk to each other and then integrate something out of that uh, you know, communication. And the same, the same thing will be true in the next step, essentially. We have to now start to think uh, in more global context in terms of you know, what are all the different players and how are they shaping things that, uh, and give you new properties that are not there in terms of the individual components. So I think that's where the, the next integration will be, is uh, uh, and and also all the technology that will allow you to do that, and it's gonna you know one of the and and then the other thing we have to do uh, is to be able to put this in a format that we can comprehend. I mean I think you know what we're gonna do is be feeding up an enormous amount of information into a computer. It's gonna spit back out the results, and then we're gonna have to put it in a format that's co- comprehensible to us. Uh, and uh, and that's always a challenge. I mean, I think it's you know our ability to communicate what's happening, in terms of actual what's uh, happening, is uh, is going to be very challenging. So I think that's where I see. But it's always uh, you know it's always going to be information driven and utilizing most from uh, the uh, the most, yeah, essentially being able to extract the most from that information
1: base. was uh, a remarkable childhood. Prior to the entry to the United States, uh-huh. do you uh-huh. m- would mind
4: sharing that? Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, I look at it as uh, stochastic. That is, uh, I mean, uh, uh, when I was a child, essentially, my mother uh, was uh, interned in Germany because of her anti-Nazi, uh, anti-fascist uh, sentiments and also you know, making pamphlets and so on. Uh, showing her sentiments. So she anticipated being picked up, and she actually was picked up. Uh, And then what she had made is some, uh, uh, had lined me up to be with a particular farm family that would then take care of me during her uh, internship. Uh, But the money ran out, and so then I was put in the streets. Uh, And so, uh, and and I was essentially in the streets from age four and a half to nine, uh, fending for myself most of that time. Uh, And, you know, I look at it as more or less stochastic in the sense that, you know, one is uh, children are enormously resourceful, I mean, I think, and resilient, I mean, and they also don't question what situation they're put into, I mean, simply this is the world and then you accept it and then you work from those premises. Uh, And most of the time was spent uh, trying to find food and shelter. Uh, and but you know many people also under the same circumstances didn't make it and and what we're seeing is a selection okay the ones that survived are still here talking the ones that didn't uh, didn't make it so I think it's and that's to me is more or less stochastic I mean you're lucky Uh, and then you go through that experience uh, and you do learn some things from it I mean I think one of the things that uh, I run a lab and where people we more or less do everything, in the sense that uh, you know we, we want to have people that are capable of doing molecular biology, we have uh, people that are trained in neuroscience, embryology, people from a medical background. So we have a, a fairly wide range of expertise present, and hopefully, for example, if we have to do histology, we do it ourselves. We don't send it out and somebody else does histology, simply because I think, one, is that the individual who's doing histology is the person that's gonna have uh, you know, the best eyes and be the most uh, affected by the results and therefore look at it much more carefully. And secondly, it's you know, if you're working with the system, you start to get a feeling for that system and, and you have to get your hands into it. Uh, and therefore, you have to do the experiments yourself. So, and I think that uh, arose from that period in the sense where, you know, you're initially responsible for everything, and therefore, you, you want to make sure you can handle all the different aspects of that problem. Uh, but, uh, you know, and but on the other hand, you know, if I had given a choice, certainly my daughter, I wouldn't put her through the same thing. Uh, and uh, hopefully, we did the right thing, you know, giving her a more pampered life. Mm
1: -hmm. But it has a happy ending, too. Uh, I believe your mother was interned in Dachau. Uh,
4: She was, uh, now it's, uh, we're not, we know she was interned in Germany. We're not positive it was Dachau. Uh, And uh, there now actually people are looking to find out exactly which uh, camp she was uh, interned. There are a number of camps, actually. The best evidence we have right now is that she was near Munich. Dachau is in out near Munich, but there are also several other camps uh, in that uh, uh, area that could have been there. But they had the a happy ending. They had a happy ending. So it took about two years actually to find me again to retrace my steps as I was wandering through the countrysides and going from city to city.
1: Mm-hmm. And she found you. Okay. And I heard, and from what I read, that you had your first bath and. Years. Uh,
4: th- the first bath in uh, six years, actually, or oh, well, nine, eight, nine years probably. <laughs> uh,
5: did you enjoy it or did you hate it?
4: No, that was actually in, uh, in the ancient Roman baths, so that was quite uh, uh-huh. that was quite uh, remarkable.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh,
4: but uh, no, and many, many firsts, I mean, uh, just even sitting at a meal uh, and having a meal was uh, not a common thing. Uh, No, and and then when I came to this country, I mean, she, uh, her brother was actually living in Pennsylvania and then uh, he had started a commune Uh, and so this is about 60 families all living together, communally owning property in common and so on. So you have a juxtaposition of being in a situation was completely, uh, you know, non-social. To a, a uh, situation where it's extremely social and everybody knew everything, so that was quite a contrast, I and mean, it was a and was terrific for kids because there were lot of activities.
5: So, uh, so how does that experience? I mean, in, in, in looking at the uh, where you where, where you are now, uh, I mean, how do you see those experiences of the past affecting even how you run your lab? You were it's interesting the approach that you have in in terms of your own lab, but how you have representation of the different fields and and the expectation that you have from people. How does that experience affect? I think think that's a very, you know,
4: unfortunately with humans, we can't ever do controls. (laughs) We can't uh, put people in several different situations and ask what what would be the outcome. I mean, in this particular case, I think things worked out. And, uh, you know, what was important to me was to I mean and that, I think part of that uh, arose from that community that is what was it was started by Quakers and what they emphasize is not so much you know what do you acquire uh, but what can you what is your service you know what can you do for people uh, and, and 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 not so much what you accomplish but what service have you performed and that, and that's a measure of the person and that's the same kind of uh, feeling that hope you know through science I mean, one of the nice things that we do is we see application i mean we you know it may not happen in 10 years or 20 years but at least we can see a direction that the information we're gathering will be useful for humankind and we need a lot of help i mean we you know in many ways we're uh, doing awful things to our planet uh, and we're not taking responsibilities for it and we're going to have to change our directions to become much more sensitive to a very fragile uh, environment mm-hmm. Can't let you get away
3: without asking you a neuroembryology question.
0: Uh-huh.
3: The, it seems to me that there's been enormous success in figuring out the developmental plan of the hindbrain. And then as you pointed out, it sort of stops at the uh-huh. midbrain uh-huh. and then the telencephalon. And I'm wondering, was there is there a change in plan? Or have we just not yet identified the genes that are important in the diencephalon and the telencephalon? Or is it just one giant rhombomere up there.
4: Uh, no, 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 I think it's... Uh, my guess is that, you know, it's three brains put on top of each other. <laughs> and so, it's, you know, the one works fantastic. I mean, essentially, our hindbrain is what we, you know, have we stopped at being crocodiles. Uh, and, you know, and crocodiles fairly adapt, they can do lots of things and respond fairly efficiently with respect to the environment. But I don't think a crocodile is thinking about a lot of things, except maybe possibly the next meal. Uh, and so I think the other aspects of the brain are simply one you put on top of the next and allows you, again, a more sophisticated integration as to what's going on in the environment and being able to predict what's happening out there and making sense out of it. And I think that's the rest of uh, what the rest of the brain is doing and interacting in more sophisticated ways. So I think, uh, and it's going to be... I, th- I think the reason we haven't gone into it because it's uh, it's more complex. I mean, I think, and we you know we have to work at that level that we can handle, and then go on to the next uh, area of complexity and so on. Uh, and I think that it's just going to come. I think. Uh, I mean, most of the interesting things are going to, hopefully, will be happening in our forebrain. <laughs> that's, uh, at least that that's the part that's expanded relative to other creatures. And so, you know, from an anthropomorphic point of view, we think that's the most important part. Uh, but And I think certainly it will be in terms of, you know, the sophistication of being able to handle large pieces of information. I mean, a question that, you know, that I always entertain, I think, is... Uh, you know, do we have, essentially, enough brain power to really understand the brain? Uh, and I think it would be challenging. And I think part of it will be, you know, how sophisticated can we make our technology? Because that's going to have to, you know, I mean, we're, when we talk and thinking, we're working in nanosecond uh, speed, okay? Our capture times with MRI are minutes, okay? So we're a long ways to go. Uh, and that's what we want to, that's what we have to start visualizing is how can we start uh, you know extracting information at a level that we're actually processing it, in, uh, to really understand it. And that my guess is it'll come. I mean I don't think we could see quite, but I think we're certainly seeing improvements and we're seeing certainly orders of improvements and now we just simply have to go ten you know six orders of improvements. So it's uh, it's it's a challenge, but I think it's coming.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm curious, when you were working on uh, gene targeting in the 80s, and, or late 70s, I guess, in the 80s, most, it, was, it was obvious that you were doing something big and important. And looking at the trajectory in your head at that point, how you imagine the field developing from mm-hmm. this versus what it's become now, yeah. how pervasive things are, have there been any surprises along the way? Uh,
4: the I mean, case? it was remarkable. I mean, we initially, when we started, I mean, one is we wanted to change genes and two, we actually wanted to change gene in a, in a mammal like uh, a mouse. Okay, And it was clear that when we started, those tools weren't available. I mean, ES cells were not available. Uh, there were things called EC cells, embryonic carcinoma cells, but they looked disappointingly, uh, know, because they, there was only one report, essentially, that those uh, cells were capable of uh, going into the germline. And, and even that report was not uh, you know, was questionable. So I think it's uh, clear that and, you know, at the time, we knew what we wanted to do, but the tools weren't there. But slowly what happened is, is we worked on gene-targeting mammalian cells. We developed it. And by the time we were comfortable with that, all of a sudden now people were talking about, uh, e, well, at that time it was called EK cells, uh, and then they became ES cells. So all of a sudden we saw how we were gonna be able to jump Into mice, and in fact, at that point, actually, I called uh, Martin Evans, who was working on these cells, and went to his lab and learned how to use them. So, you know, in a sense, many things is always timing. It's uh, you know, all of science is timing, and you know whether you get a grant or not, it's always timing. If you good timing, you'll get it. If it's bad timing, it's going to be difficult. Uh, and so, and so, we were progressing about the, you know, we were hoping to go a lot faster than we were, but in actuality, we couldn't have gone any faster because the the next step wasn't available until we were ready to utilize it. Uh, so we, you know, we saw what we wanted to do, but it took ten years to get
5: there. So it's a, you know, it was a long road. I have one question that is going back to the uh-huh. to the what we were talking about within the context of learning and memory. Again, it, it, I'm biased because that's my field, but we talk a lot about uh, uh, knockouts and seeing deficit, but yet we see very little of improving the memory of a uh-huh. mouse, uh-huh. getting a smart mouse. Uh-huh. You know, so there were, I know that back in, uh, was it 1996? Yeah, the Doogie The Doogie Mouse, and I don't hear much about the Doogie Mouse, right. so yeah. I don't know if it became a really Doogie. Right. Uh, so, so what, can you comment, why is it that we don't think about improving, or rather than... I think because we don't have, we don't even know what
4: intelligence is. I mean, I think, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, we sort of have a vague idea, you know, and, and my feeling is that there are many intelligence, I mean, I, I view a, a violin player as, as an intelligence. I don't have it, but uh, certainly violin players have it. Uh, so there, I think there are different types of intelligence. And I think we have to have a greater understanding of what we mean by intelligence. I mean, I think improved memory, my guess is that that may not be an intelligent thing to do because, you know, at the extreme, if, you know, all, if we actually stored and be able to uh, regurgitate all the experiences we're having every day, we would be completely lost. I mean, so we have to have a way of filtering through what information is important to keep, what information isn't important to keep. Uh, and so, and and that changes again. I mean, to me, what's in, what's incredible to me about the brain is that it is uh, plastic. I mean, it's made essentially to address the environment as it exists, and that environment is changing, and it's going to continue to change, and it's going to have to refine itself to its new environments. Uh, and so, I think even the definition of intelligence is going to change as time goes on. Because I think we're becoming a much more information-oriented uh, world, in essence. So I think it's going to play a different role, and uh, and what we're going to be capturing, you know, ten years from now in terms of even our kids is going to be quite different, and we can see it already. I mean, what, you know, what's uh, turning them on and off is quite different from what was turning us on and off. Uh, and so I think that's the uh, the challenge to me. I think uh, so. Improvement, I think, is a you know is a we only will know that once we really understand it i mean and i think we're a very long way from understanding it i mean we just really you know what we i always look at you know what we know as being measured in uh, millimeters and what uh, you know what's needed to be known is going to be measured in many meters mm-hmm. so we're orders of magnitude separate and we don't have the appreciation now i think to really address those questions but that's why i find uh Discussions of, you know, people saying, well, this group is more intelligent than the next group and so on is completely ridiculous because we don't even know what that means. Uh, and uh, and, I, and, I, and again, I would say that that's going to change with time. Uh, so it's, uh know, and, and so I think, uh, you know, until we know those questions, we won't be able to address improvement and we won't even be able to... We uh, Hopefully, our education systems are improving, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that's even doubtful. Uh, and uh, so I think we have to, uh, you know, we have to address those questions and be able to get an understanding so that then we can eventually... I mean, I think it will be important for us to improve our brain because it will have to handle much more information than it currently uh, is exposed to.
3: And, and quick... Question and your uh, your your perspective on it. So, institu- academic institutes are popping up across the country at an alarming rate. So, HHMI has uh, the Janelle Farms, and you mentioned what they're trying to do is uh, recreate the, uh, the the Cavendish uh, laboratory or Crick, you know, the site of discovery. They're trying to do that. So. Uh, you were at Harvard in the late sixties and early seventies, and then you went from a very established institute to really a new in, a new university with respect to research, University of Utah. And within thirty years, you helped build the uh, genetic institute to a, uh, a world-renowned center. Do you have any? Do you see any commonalities amongst these institutes and uh, 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 some of the uh, things that were used to to help? Boost institutions along.
4: Yeah, no, I think uh, I mean I think the formula that we use, for example, at Utah, was recognition of one. You know, one has to work with the resources you have, and then make the best use of it. And so, what that uh, makes you do is to make selections. I mean, we uh, we decided that what we would emphasize, for example, is genetics. Uh, and so, and at the expense of other things. Uh, and so, and then, uh, and, and we, I think we were successful essentially in, uh, you know, getting good representation of genetics at every level. I mean, starting from bacteria all the way through humans and everything in between. So, uh, and I think again, what, uh, I mean, what I would urge is simply, you know, find a niche. Uh, and, and then the other thing is always you want to, a look into the future. I mean, I think it's, you want to build essentially, you know, we, I mean, for example, right now all our hiring is at the level of uh, assistant professors. We want to essentially build a young group that will replace us. I mean, we don't want to become top heavy because then all of a sudden, you know, you're going to go through a phase where everything's going to drop. And so what we want to continue to do is build from the bottom up. And uh, encourage essentially, you know, it's the young minds essentially that are going to be the minds of tomorrow, and so that's where our resources should go. And again, what you ha- you can't be good at everything, and so what you have to do is figure out, you know, what's your nucleus and build on that, and then continue to uh, improve and, and strengthen that. But at the same time, not to become you know, too narrow. I mean, I think there's always you're always measuring yourself. At, you, you know, I mean, one of the nice things, for example, of being in a biology department is simply that you're exposed to people, you know, in many different disciplines. And I think that has an enormous uh, importance in terms of, I mean, I always look at science as being what well, the most difficult thing for scientists is to become optic. I mean, the You know, you're comfortable in a certain environment, you're comfortable using certain technology, and you want to continue doing that same experiment. It's called the Hershey of Heaven, where essentially you repeat that same experiment that was fantastic over and over again. Uh, But it has limited ends. And so what you want to be able to do is to, I mean, the nice thing about science, it's always changing. It's always changing. The problems we addressed five years ago are completely different from what we're doing now, and it will be completely different from what we'll do five years from now. The technology changes, and so you want to be very adaptive and uh, take advantage of these new influxes and keep yourself open and make sure that you don't uh, follow a path. And and you know what I've purposely done in my own life is to try to change. Uh, you know, I, I jump literally into a different discipline every used to be every about seven years simply because it forced me to read a new literature, it forced me to meet new people uh, and to think about new problems. And I think that's very healthy essentially for our brain. It's just, you challenge it. If you challenge it, it'll, uh, it'll meet up to you. If you don't challenge it, it'll just stay happy. So you, know, you have to have a, a certain degree of uncomfortableness, uh, and that's important for science. Uh, and that's, I think that's why you know, competition, some people say, no, that's an awful thing. But I think competition, in the, is in the, uh, when it's used appropriately, is actually a very good thing because it's always it maintains the challenge. It keeps you off guard in thinking.
0: Well done. Thank you for being here, everyone. Thanks for moderating, Gary. Yeah. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.
4: Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, all. Thank you so <laughs>